The Library of Babel. By this art, you may contemplate the variation of the 23 letters, the anatomy of melancholy. The universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite and perhaps infinite number of hexagonal galleries, with vast air shafts between, surrounded by very low railings. From any of the hexagons, one can see, interminably, the upper and lower floors. The distribution of the galleries is invariable. Twenty shelves, five long shelves per side, cover all the sides except two. Their height, which is the distance from floor to ceiling, scarcely exceeds that of a normal bookcase. One of the free sides leads to a narrow hallway which opens onto another gallery, identical to the first and to all the rest. To the left and right of the hallway, there are two very small closets. In the first, one may sleep standing up. In the other, satisfy one's fecal necessities. Also, th also through here passes a spiral stairway which sinks abysmally and soars upwards to remote distances. In the hallway, there is a mirror which faithfully duplicates all appearances. Men usually infer from this mirror that the library is not infinite. If it really were, why this illusory duplication? I prefer to dream that its polished surfaces represent and promise the infinite. Light is provided by some spherical fruit, which bear the name of lamps. There are two transversely placed in each hexagon. The light they emit is insufficient, incessant. Like all men of the library, I have traveled in my youth. I have wandered in search of a book, perhaps the catalog of catalogs. Now that my eyes can hardly decipher what I write, I am preparing to die just a few leagues from the hexagon in which I was born. Once I am dead, there will be no lack of pious hands to throw me over the railing. My grave will be the fathomless air. My body will sink endlessly and decay and dissolve in the wind generated by the fall, which is infinite. I say that the library is unending. The idealists argue that the hexagonal rooms are a necessary form of absolute space, or at least of our intuition of space. They reason that a triangular or pentagonal room is inconceivable. The mystics claim that their ecstasy reveals to them a circular chamber containing a great circular book whose spine is continuous and which follows the complete circle of the walls, but their testimony is suspect, their words obscure. This cyclical, this cyclical book is God. Let it suffice now for me to repeat the classic dictum. The library is a sphere whose exact center is any one of its hexagons and whose circumference is inaccessible. There are five shelves for each of the hexagon's walls. Each shelf contains 35 books of uniform format. Each book 
is of 410 pages, each page of 40 lines, each line of some 80 letters which are black in color. There are also letters on the spine of each book. These letters do not indicate or prefigure what the pages will say. I know that this incoherence at one time seemed mysterious. Before summarizing the solution, his discovery, in spite of its tragic projections, is perhaps the capital fact in history. I wish to recall a few axioms. First, the library exists ab eterno. This truth, whose immediate corollary is the future eternity of the world, cannot be placed in doubt by any reasonable mind. Man, the imperfect librarian, may be the product of chance or of malevolent demiurgy. The universe, with its elegant endowment of shelves, of enigmatical volumes, of inexhaustible stairways for the traveler and latrines for the seated librarian, can only be the work of a god. To perceive the distance between the divine and the human, it is enough to compare these crude wavering symbols which my fallible hand scrawls on the cover of a book with the organic letters inside, punctual, delicate, perfectly black, inimitably symmetrical. Second, the orthographical symbols are 25 in number. This finding made it possible, 300 years ago, to formulate a general theory of the library and solve satisfactorily the problem which no conjecture had deciphered the formless and chaotic nature of almost all the books. One which my father saw in a hexagon on circuit, 1594, was made up of the letters MCV, perversely repeated from the first line to the last. Another, very much consulted in this area, is a mere labyrinth of letters. But the next to last page says, O time thy pyramids. This much is already known. For every sensible line of straightforward statement, there are leagues of senseless cacophonies, verbal jumbles, and incoherences. I know of an uncouth region whose librarians repudiate the vain and superstitious custom of finding a meaning in books and equate it with that of finding a meaning in dreams or in the chaotic lines of one's palm. They admit that the inventors of this writing imitated the 25 natural symbols, but maintain that this application is accidental and that the books signify nothing in themselves. This dictum, we shall see, is not entirely fallacious. For a long time, it was believed that these impenetrable books corresponded to past or remote languages. It is true that the most ancient men, the first librarians, used a language quite different from the one we now speak. It is true that a few miles up to the right, the tongue is dialectical, and that ninety floors farther up, it is incomprehensible. All this, I repeat, is true, 
But 410 pages of inalterable MCVs cannot correspond to any language, no matter how dialectal or rudimentary it may be. Some insinuated that each letter could influence the following one, and that the value of MCV in the third line of page 71 was not the one the same series may have in another position on another page. But this vague thesis did not prevail. Others thought of cryptographs. Generally, this conjecture has been accepted, though not in the sense in which it was formulated by its originators. 500 years ago, the chief of an upper hexagon came upon a book as confusing as the others, but which had nearly two pages of homogeneous lines. He showed his find to a wandering decoder who told him the lines were written in Portuguese. Others said they were Yiddish. Within a century, the language was established, a Samoyedic Lithuanian dialect of Guarani with classical Arabian inflections. The content was also deciphered. Some notions of combinative analysis illustrated with examples of variation with unlimited repetition. These examples made it possible for a librarian of genius to discover the fundamental law of the library. This thinker observed that all the books, no matter how diverse they might be, are made up of the same elements, the space, the period, the comma, the 22 letters of the alphabet. He also alleged a fact which travelers have confirmed. In the vast library, there are no two identical books. From these in two incontrovertible premises, he deduced that the library is total and that its shelves register all the possible combinations of the 20-odd orthographical symbols, a number which, though extremely vast, is not infinite. In other words, all that it is given to express in all languages. Everything. The minutely detailed history of the future. The Archangel's autobiographies. The faithful catalogue of the library, thousands and thousands of false catalogues, the, the demonstration of the fallacy of these catalogues, the demonstration of the fallacy of the true catalogue, the Gnostic gospel of Basilides, the commentary on that gospel, the commentary on the commentary on that gospel, the true story of your death, the translation of every book in all languages, the interpolations of every book in all books. When it was proclaimed that the library contained all books, the first impression was one of extravagant happiness. All men felt themselves to be the masters of an intact and secret treasure. There was no personal or world problem whose eloquent solution did not exist in some hexagon. The universe was justified. The universe suddenly usurped the unlimited dimensions of hope. At that time, a great deal was said about the vindications. Books of apology and prophecy which vindicated for all time 
The acts of every man in the universe and retained prodigious arcana for his future. Thousands of the greedy abandoned their sweet native hexagons and rushed up the stairways, urged on by the vain intention of finding their vindication. These pilgrims disputed in the narrow corridors, proffered dark curses, strangled each other on the divine stairways, flung the deceptive books into the air shafts, met their death cast down in a similar fashion by the inhabitants of remote regions. Others went mad. The vindications exist. I have seen two which refer to persons of the future, to persons who perhaps are not imaginary. But the searchers did not remember that the possibility of a man's finding his vindication or some treacherous variation thereof can be computed as zero. At that time, it was also hoped that a clarification of humanity's basic mysteries, the origin of the library and of time, might be found. It is very similar that these grave mysteries could be explained in words. If the language of philosophers is not sufficient, the multiform library will have produced the unprecedented language required with its vocabularies and grammars. For four centuries now, men have exhausted the hexagons. There are official searchers, inquisitors. I have seen them in the performance of their function. They always arrive extremely tired from their journeys. They speak of a broken stairway, which almost killed them. They talk with the librarian of galleries and stairs. Sometimes they pick up the nearest volume and leaf through it, looking for infamous words. Obviously, no one expects to discover anything. As was natural, this inordinate hope was followed by an excessive depression. The certitude that some shelf in some hexagon held precious books, and that these precious books were inaccessible, seemed almost intolerable. A blasphemous sect suggested that the searches should cease and that all men should juggle letters and symbols until they constructed, by an improbable gift of chance, these canonical books. The authorities were obliged to issue severe orders. The sect disappeared, but in my childhood I have seen old men who, for long periods of time, would hide in the latrines with some metal discs in a forbidden dice cup and feebly mimic the divine disorder. Others, inversely, believed that it was fundamental to eliminate useless works. They invaded the hexagons, showed credentials which were not always false, leafed through a volume with displeasure, and condemned whole shelves. Their hygienic, ascetic furor caused the senseless perdition of millions of books. Their name is execrated, but those who deplore the treasures destroyed by this frenzy neglect two notable facts. One, the library is so enormous that any reduction of human origin is infinitesimal. The other, every copy is unique, irreplaceable, but since the library is total, 
There are always several hundred thousand imperfect facsimiles, works which differ only in a letter or in a comma. Counter to general opinion, I venture to suppose that the consequences of the purifier's depredations have been exaggerated by the horror these fanatics produced. They were urged on by the delirium of trying to reach the books in the crimson hexagon, books whose format is smaller than the usual, all-powerful, illustrated, and magical. We also know of another superstition of that time, that of the man of the book. On some shelf in some hexagon, men reasoned, there must exist a book which is the formula and perfect compendium of all the rest. Some librarian has gone through it, and he is analogous to a god. In the language of this zone, vestiges of this remote functionary's cult still persist. Many wandered in search of him. For a century, they exhausted in vain the most varied areas. How could one locate the venerated and secret hexagon which housed him? Someone proposed a regressive method. To locate book A, consult first a book B, which indicates A's position. To locate book B, consult first a book C, and so on to infinity. In adventures such as these, I have squandered and wasted my years. It does not seem unlikely to me that there is a total book on some shelf of the universe. I pray to the unknown gods that a man, just one, even though it were thousands of years ago, may have examined and read it. If honor and wisdom and happiness are not for me, let them be for others. Let heaven exist, though my place be in hell. Let me be outraged and annihilated, but for one instant in one being, let your enormous library be justified. The impious maintain that nonsense is normal in the library, and that the reasonable, and even humble and pure coherence, is an almost miraculous exception. They speak, I know, of the feverish library whose chance volumes are constantly in danger of changing into others, and affirm, negate, and confuse everything like a delirious divinity. These words, which not only denounce the disorder, but exemplify it as well, notoriously prove their author's abominable taste and desperate ignorance. In truth, the library includes all verbal structures, all variations permitted by the 25 orthographical symbols, but not a simple, single example of absolute nonsense. It is useless to observe that the best volume of the many hexagons under my administration is entitled The Combed Thunderclap, and another The Plaster Cramp, and another Exas These phrases, at first glance incoherent, can no doubt be justified in a cryptographical or allegorical manner. Such a justification is verbal, and ex hypothesi already figures in the library. I cannot combine some characters D H C M R L C H T D J 
which the Divine Library has not foreseen, and which in one of its secret tongues do not contain a terrible meaning. No one can articulate a syllable which is not filled with tenderness and fear, which is not, in one of these languages, the powerful name of a god. To speak is to fall into tautology. This wordy and useless epistle already exists in one of the thirty volumes of the five shelves of one of the innumerable hexagons, and its refutation as well. An n number of possible languages use the same vocabulary, and in some of them, the symbol library allows the correct definition, a ubiquitous and lasting system of hexagonal galleries. But library is bread or pyramid or anything else, and these seven words which define it have another value. You who read me, are you sure of understanding my language? The methodical task of writing distracts me from the present state of men. The certitude that everything has been written negates us or turns us into phantoms. I know of districts in which the young men prostrate themselves before books and kiss their pages in a barbarous manner, but they do not know how to decipher a single letter. Epidemics, heretical conflicts, peregrinations which inevitably degenerate into banditry have decimated the population. I believe I have mentioned the suicides more and more frequent with the years. Perhaps my old age and fearfulness deceive me, but I suspect that the human species, the unique species, is about to be extinguished. But the library will endure, illuminated, solitary, infinite, perfectly motionless, equipped with precious volumes, useless, incorruptible, secret. I have just written the word infinite. I have not interpolated this adjective out of rhetorical habit. I say that it is not illogical to think that the world is infinite. Those who judge it to be limited postulate that in remote places the corridors and stairways and hexagons can conceivably come to an end, which is absurd. Those who imagine it to be without limit forget that the possible number of books does have such a limit. I venture to suggest the solution to the ancient problem. The library is unlimited and cyclical. If an eternal traveler were to cross it in any direction, after centuries he would see that the same volumes were repeated in the same disorder, which, thus repeated, would be in order, the order. My solitude is gladdened by this elegant hope. immortal. Solomon saith, there is no new thing upon the earth, so that as Plato had an imagination that all knowledge was but remembrance, so Solomon giveth his sentence that all novelty is but oblivion. Francis Bacon, Essays. 
In London, in the first part of June 1929, the antique dealer Joseph Cartophilus of Smyrna offered the Princess of Lucinge the six volumes in small quarto, 1715-1720, of Pope's Iliad. The princess acquired them. On receiving the books, she exchanged a few words with the dealer. He was, she tells us, a wasted and earthen man, with grey eyes and grey beard, of singularly vague features. He could express himself with fluency and ignorance in several languages. In a very few minutes, he went from French to English and from English to an enigmatic conjunction of Salonica Spanish and Macau Portuguese. In October, the princess heard from a passenger of the Zeus that Cartophilus had died at sea while returning to Smyrna, and that he had been buried on the island of Eos. In the last volume of the Iliad, she found this manuscript. The original is written in English and abounds in Latinisms. The version we offer is literal. 1. As far as I can recall, my labors began in a garden in Thebes, Hecatompylos, when Diocletian was emperor. I had served without glory in the recent Egyptian wars. I was tribune of the legion quartered in Berenice, facing the Red Sea. Fever and magic consumed many men who had magnanimously coveted the steel. The Mauritanians were vanquished. The land previously occupied by the rebel cities was eternally dedicated to the Plutonic gods. Alexandria, once subdued, vainly implored Caesar's mercy. Within a year, the legions reported victory, but I scarcely managed a glimpse of Mars's countenance. This privation pained me and perhaps caused me precipitously to undertake the discovery, through fearful and diffuse deserts, of the secret city of the immortals. My labors began, <clears throat> I have related, in a garden in Thebes. All that night, I was unable to sleep, for something was struggling within my heart. I arose shortly before dawn. My slaves were sleeping. The moon was of the same color as the infinite sand. An exhausted and bloody horseman came from the east. A few steps from me, he tumbled from his mount. In a faint, insatiable voice, he asked me in Latin the name of the river bathing the city's walls. I answered that it was the Egypt, fed by the rains. Another is the river I seek, he replied sadly, the secret river which cleanses men of death. Dark blood surged from his breast. He told me that his homeland was a mountain on the other side of the Ganges, and that on this mountain it was said that if one traveled to the west, where the world ends, he would reach the river whose waters grant immortality. He added that on its far bank, the city of the immortals rises, rich in bastions and amphitheaters and temples. Before dawn, he died, but I had determined to discover the city and its river. Interrogated by the executioner, 
Some Mauritanian prisoners confirmed the traveler's tale. Someone recalled the Elysian plain at the end of the earth, where men's lives are perdurable. Someone else, the peaks where the platycliffs lives, whose inhabitants live for a century. In Rome, I conversed with philosophers who felt that to extend man's life is to extend his agony and multiply his deaths. I do not know if I ever believed in the city of the immortals. I think that then the task of finding it was sufficient. Flavius, proconsul of Getulia, gave me 200 soldiers for the undertaking. I also recruited mercenaries who said they knew the roads and were the first to desert. Later events have deformed inextricably the memory of the first days of our journey. We departed from Arsinoe and entered the burning desert. We crossed the land of the troglodytes, who devour serpents and are ignorant of verbal commerce. That of the Garamants, who keep their women in common and feed on lions that of the Augules, who worship only Tartarus. We exhausted other deserts, where the sand is black, where the traveler must usurp the hours of night, for the fervor of day is intolerable. From afar, I glimpsed the mountain which gave its name to the ocean. On its peak live the satyrs, a nation of fell and savage men, <coughs> given to lewdness that these barbarous regions, where the earth is mother of monsters, could shelter in their interior a famous city, seemed inconceivable to all of us. We continued our march, for it would have been dishonor to turn back. A few foolhardy men slept with their faces exposed to the moon. They burned with fever. In the corrupted water of the cisterns, others drank madness and death. Then the desertions began. Very shortly thereafter, mutinies. To repress them, I did not hesitate to exercise severity. I proceeded justly, but a centurion warned me that the seditious, eager to avenge the crucifixion of one of their number, were plotting my death. I fled from the camp with a few soldiers loyal to me. I lost them in the desert amid the sandstorms and the vast night. I was lacerated by a Cretan arrow. I wandered several days without finding water, or one enormous day multiplied by the sun, my thirst or my fear of thirst. I left the route to the judgment of my horses. In the dawn, the distance bristled up into pyramids and towers. Intolerably, I dreamt of an exiguous and muted labyrinth. In the center was a water jar. My hands almost touched it. My eyes could see it, but so intricate and perplexed were the curves that I knew I would die before reaching it. Two. When finally I became untangled from this nightmare, I found myself lying with my hands tied in an oblong stone niche, no longer, no larger than a common grave, shallowly excavated into the sharp slope of a mountain. Its sides were damp, polished by time, 
rather than by human effort. I felt a painful throbbing in my chest. I felt that I was burning with thirst. I looked out and shouted feebly. At the foot of the mountain, an impure stream spread noiselessly, clogged with debris and sand. On the opposite bank, beneath the last sun, or beneath the first, shone the evident city of the immortals. I saw walls, arches, facades, and fora. The base was a stone plateau. A hundred or so irregular niches, analogous to mine, furrowed the mountain and the valley. In the sand, there were shallow pits. From these miserable holes and from the niches, naked, gray-skinned, scraggly bearded men emerged. I thought I recognized them. They belonged to the bestial breed of the troglodytes, who infest the shores of the Arabian Gulf and the caverns of Ethiopia. I was not amazed that they could not speak and that they devoured serpents. The urgency of my thirst made me reckless. I calculated that I was some 30 feet from the sand. I threw myself headlong down the slope, my eyes closed, my hands behind my back. I sank my bloody face into the dark water. I drank just as animals water themselves. Before losing myself again in sleep and delirium, I repeated inexplicably some words in Greek. The rich Trojans from Zelia who drink the black water of the Aesipos. I do not know how many nights and days turned above me. Aching, unable to regain the shelter of the caverns, naked on the unknown sand, I let the moon and the sun gamble with my unfortunate destiny. The troglodytes, infantile in their barbarity, did not aid me to survive or to die. In vain, I begged them to put me to death. One day, I broke my bindings on an edge of flint. Another day, I got up and managed to beg or steal. I, Marcus Flaminius Rufus, military tribune of one of Rome's legions, my first detested portion of serpent flesh. My covetousness to see the immortals, to touch the superhuman city, almost kept me from sleep. As if they penetrated my purpose, neither did the troglodytes sleep. At first I inferred that they were watching me, later that they had become contaminated by my uneasiness, much as dogs may do. To leave the barbarous village, I chose the most public of hours, the coming of evening, when almost all the men emerge from their crevices and pits and look at the setting sun without seeing it. I prayed out loud, less a supplication to divine favor than as an intimidation of the tribe with articulate words. I crossed the stream clogged by the dunes and headed toward the city Confusedly, two or three men followed me. They were, like the others of that breed, of slight stature. They did not inspire fear, but rather repulsion. I had to skirt several irregular ravines, which seemed to me like quarries. Obfuscated by the city's grandeur, I had thought it nearby. 
Toward midnight, I set foot upon the black shadow of its walls, bristling out in idolatrous forms on the yellow sand. I was halted by a kind of sacred honor. Horror. Novelty and the desert are so abhorred by man that I was glad one of the troglodytes had followed me to the last. I closed my eyes and awaited, without sleeping, the light of day. I have said that the city was founded on a stone plateau. This plateau, comparable to a high cliff, was no less arduous than the walls. In vain I fatigued myself. The black base did not disclose the slightest irregularity. The invariable walls seemed not to admit a single door. The force of the sun obliged me to seek refuge in a cave. In the rear was a pit, in the pit a stairway which sank down abysmally in the darkness below. I went down through a chaos of sordid galleries. I reached a vast circular chamber, scarcely visible. There were nine doors in the cellar. Eight led to a labyrinth that treacherously returned to the same chamber. The ninth, through another labyrinth, led to a second circular chamber equal to the first. I do not know the total number of these chambers. My misfortune and anxiety multiplied them. The silence was hostile and almost perfect. There was no sound in this deep stone network, save that of a subterranean wind. His cause I did not discover. Noiselessly, tiny streams of rusty water disappeared between the crevices. Horribly, I became habituated to this doubtful world. I found it incredible that there could be anything but cellars, with nine doors and long branched out cellars. I do not know how long I must have walked beneath the ground. I know that I once confused, in the same nostalgia, the atrocious village of the barbarians and my native city amid the vineyards. In the depths of a corridor, an unforeseen wall halted me. A remote light fell from above. I raised my confused eyes. In the vertiginous extreme heights, I saw a circle of sky so blue it seemed purple. Some metal rungs scaled the wall. I was limp with fatigue, but I climbed up, stopping only at times to sob clumsily with joy. I began to glimpse capitals and astragals, triangular pediments and vaults, confused pageants of granite and marble. Thus, I was afforded this ascension from the blind region of dark interwoven labyrinths into the resplendent city. I emerged into a kind of little square, or rather, a kind of courtyard. It was surrounded by a single building of irregular form and variable height. To this heterogeneous building belong the different cupolas and columns. Rather than by any other trait of this incredible monument, I was held by the extreme age of its fabrication. I felt that it was older than mankind, than the earth. This manifest antiquity, though in some way terrible to the eyes, seemed to me in keeping with the work of immortal builders.
At first cautiously, later indifferently, at last desperately, I wandered up the stairs and along the pavements of the in inextricable palace. Afterwards, I learned that with the width and height of the steps were not constant, a fact which made me understand the singular fatigue they produced. The palace is a fabrication of the gods, I thought at the beginning. I explored the uninhabited interiors and corrected myself. The gods who have built it have died. I noted its peculiarities and said, the gods who built it were mad. I said it, I know, with an incomprehensible reprobation, which was almost remorse, with more intellectual horror than palpable fear. To the impression of enormous antiquity, others were added, that of the interminable, that of the atrocious, that of the complexly senseless. I had crossed a labyrinth, but the knitted city of the immortals filled me with fright and repugnance. A labyrinth is a structure compounded to confuse men. Its architecture, rich in symmetries, symmetries is subordinated to that end. In the palace I imperfectly explored, the architecture lacked any such finality. It abounded in dead-end corridors, high, unattainable windows, pretentious doors which led to a cellar pit, incredible inverted stairways whose steps and balustrades hung downwards, other stairways clinging airily to the side of a monumental wall would die without leading anywhere, after making two or three turns in the lofty darkness of the cupolas. I do not know if all the examples I have enumerated are literal. I know that for many years they infested my nightmares. I am no longer able to know if such and such a detail is a transcription of reality or the forms which unhinged my nights. This city, I thought, is so horrible that its mere existence and perdurance, though in the midst of a secret desert, contaminates the past and the future, and in some way even jeopardizes the stars. As long as it lasts, no one in the world can be strong or happy. I do not want to describe it, a chaos of heterogeneous words, the body of a tiger, or a bull in which teeth, organs, and heads monstrously pullulate in mutual conjunction, and hatred can perhaps be approximate images. I do not remember the stages of my return amid the dusty and damp hypogeo. I only know I was not abandoned by the fear that when I left the last labyrinth, I would again be surrounded by the nefarious city of the immortals. I can perhaps remember nothing else. This oblivion, now insuperable, was perhaps voluntary. Perhaps the circumstances of my escape were so unpleasant that, on some day, no less forgotten as well, I swore to forget them.